Hey everybody, welcome to Grounded Truth, a podcast where we gather some of the world's most influential data scientists, machine learning practitioners, and innovation leaders for conversations on the most relevant topics in AI today. I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success at Watchful, the world's most efficient way to explore and label unstructured text for your data analytics and machine learning workflows. You can try Watchful for free today at www.watchful.io. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Fairchild, group leader of the Information Systems Modeling Group, or A1, at Los Alamos National Labs. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself, John? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Always enjoy talking with you and uh, hopefully we can have some fun uh, nerding out a bit on uh, kind of the world of AI today and learning a little bit about what you and your uh, team works on at Los Alamos National Labs. Heck yeah, let's do it. So maybe a good place to start is, uh, you know, introduce yourself a little bit. What's your background? Um, You know, kind of what led you to a group leader in the A1 group? Yeah, that's quite a story. So um, I'll give the brief version and maybe we can touch on different points of it. Uh, so I am a, I've been at Los Alamos now for about 10 years, almost 11 years. Uh, I started as a student uh, when I was finishing up my PhD and, and I became staff ever since. So I've, I've been here for quite a while now. I really love it. Uh, So my formal education, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, where I double majored in math and computer science. And yeah, heck yeah. And uh, I uh, really fell in love with the CS side of things. I was uh, I was actually interested. I was actually double majoring plus pre-med. My original intention was to go into med school. Uh, I ended Very up classic. Working, I, yeah. I, am, I, am, I am in that camp as well. <laughs> it's funny how a lot of people start off like that. Yeah. Um, I, I like So out of high school, I actually had my EMT license and I had done a bunch of work in hospital settings. Yep. And so I knew I liked it. Uh, and then when I got to UT, I uh, used that license and I went to the, you know, the the health center that was on campus. And I ended up working there for three years as a phlebotomist and then also in the urgent care clinic. And that was a lot of fun. And uh, but when I got to OCHEM, organic chemistry, that was when I realized that pre-med was probably not my cup of tea anymore. So I, uh, I, th- I, just, I think that's a pretty common sentiment as well. I think you're right. I think you're right. I have I have a natural affinity for math and computer science. And so I ended up just kind of deciding to go forward with those. Uh, then I, uh, uh, I started thinking about grad school towards the end of my undergrad years. So towards the end of undergrad, uh, after those first three years of working as a phlebotomist, I actually got an internship at a software development company in Austin uh, that was doing um, some really cool government contracting work. It was kind of a small firm. Uh, if I remember right, I think 60, 70 people, something like that. And I interned there for about two years, my last two years of, of college. And uh, I had a really, really good time with it. And I think it was, I, I got to work on some kind of graph theory sorts of problems there. There were a lot of fun. So uh, I, I I didn't quite get to know the full extent of the project, but my my focus was on community detection. So, uh, so you know, you have a large graph where there are a lot of people talking to each other. You know, think of like, you know, if I call you on a cell phone, John, then there's a connection there. And then if you call somebody else, then there's another connection there. Yep. So what I was trying to do was efficient ways of, of community detection on really large graphs like that. And I kind of fell in love with it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And then I realized, oh, wow, this whole research thing could be something that I go into. And so that's what led me to grad school. So I applied to grad school and I got into a few different schools and I ended up going with the University of Iowa, which gave me a, a tuition support and all of that. And, and, you know, generally when you go for grad school, at least in a STEM field, that you go with the one that, that covers your bills. And so that's the yeah. one I went with. <laughs> 
And it ended up being kind of serendipitous for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons was uh, during my very first semester at Iowa, my advisor realized that I had this, this kind of prior life in the medical world. And he said, hey, we've got this cool new research group, uh, computational epi epidemiology. Is that something you'd be interested in working on? And I said, that sounds really cool. What is it? And it's basically disease modeling. And, and you know, is that something that you'd be interested in? And I said, heck yeah, let's try it out. And I, I, that's kind of what I ended up focusing the rest of my PhD on. Uh, so I, I went to grad school for computer science. I ended up getting my master's and my PhD in computer science. Uh, I graduated in 2014. Uh, and uh, that was about two years into my Los Alamos internship. Uh, yeah, the focus of my PhD was primarily uh, disease modeling related, and we were kind of taking a, a twist to it, which was trying to incorporate social media. So that was mm -hmm. kind of my first interest in and in exposure to text data uh, and natural language processing of it was, uh, you know, looking at, at Twitter data. Uh, we ended up looking at Instagram. We ended up looking at Yelp. Uh, those were in, back in the days when the APIs were a lot more open than they are now. Uh, and, uh, and what we were doing was making insights that there are uh, a lot of traces that humans leave on the internet in their activity. And, uh, and, and it's, you can actually use those to make more interesting insights in your models, in, like in, for disease models, for example. And so for a decent chunk of my uh, PhD dissertation was focused on using Wikipedia to build better models for disease spread. So an example there is, uh, the, an example that I like to think of is, you know, there, there are different kinds of, of information that people will leave. I, I kind of consider it like active and passive, um, where active is like you go to Twitter and you make a post, you know, you might mm -hmm. be saying, oh, I've got this cough, this cough really sucks, maybe, and, you know, maybe I've got the flu or something. People are really uh, open about that kind of, of information sharing on Twitter. And people so like to complain. People love to complain. People love, love to, complain. to complain, and they love to share their ailments, and they love to uh, to get support from community. I mean, that's just a natural yeah. human instinct. And uh, but you know, there are other kinds of instances where people probably won't be as open. So the example I like to think of is, you know, if you have chlamydia, you're probably not going to go to Twitter and post, "Hey, I've got this this terrible outbreak of chlamydia uh, that I'm dealing with right now," right? But instead, depending on what communities you're into, but yeah, does, in I would say in general, <laughs> <laughs> some people might like that. That's true. Uh, and, and so, uh, but, but, you know, you, while you might not be willing to just share that outright, you might be interested in seeking out information about that. And so we call that kind of information seeking or kind of yeah. passive information sharing where the idea is you go to Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever, and you search for chlamydia. And there, you're not expecting the world to know that you have chlamydia, but you might end up on the Wikipedia page or the CDC's yep. informational page. And there are, of course, traces that are left in access logs. It yeah. turns out that Wikipedia makes access logs available to everybody. And so one of the big uh, things that I did for my uh, dissertation, along with some folks here at Los Alamos, was figure out how to make models that include those sorts of publicly super anonymized um, uh, access logs is very cool. It's a lot of, fun. yeah, that's, that's fascinating. What a, what an interesting kind of like, uh, I guess it's not really a proxy. It is indicative of someone having at least a concern or interest and, in, you know, may or may not actually have chlamydia or something, or at least there's some concern. Yeah. That's such an interesting, like, uh, like data point that to pull on, to actually model that. And like, what, what was the kind of end result of, of, uh, of that research? 
Yeah. So what we were interested in was kind of taking a global look at, so, you know, Wikipedia is available globally. There mm -hmm. are, uh, Wikipedia is available in a lot of different languages. I don't know if you've ever really noticed, but in that left-hand sidebar on Wikipedia, yeah. there are different languages that you can click on and uh, the access logs will break it down. So if you, for example, go to the chlamydia article in English, and then you also visit it in uh, Chinese or uh, you know, Portuguese or something like that, then that is characterized in those access logs, those anonymized access logs. And what the access logs show is per hour, per uh, per post, per article on Wikipedia, how many accesses that article received. And so what we were doing was say, let's use language as a proxy for location. So uh, if you're uh, speaking, you know, you know, for example, Portuguese, then we might assume that you're in Brazil because that's the largest Portuguese speaking nation. Uh, yeah. If you're speaking Russian, we assume you're in Russia. Uh, so really simplifying uh, those those kind of assumptions, but but assuming that, and then looking at the the time series of accesses to those logs, uh, can we build a model that's better than just historical uh, information? And the answer in many cases, but not all, was actually yes. Uh, as long as you have some some uh, kind of baseline number of, of uh, visits to those articles. So we even looked at things like Ebola. There was an ongoing Ebola outbreak that was in Western Africa at that time. And Ebola was definitely, the, the signal was far too low. Uh, and there was more kind of general population interest uh, than and we weren't really able to build any sort of interesting models from that. But things like yeah. influenza, uh, we had some success with HIV, some really interesting results there, even though that's kind of a long-term chronic illness uh, that people deal with. Um, and a, and a handful of others. And so we were looking kind of, uh, I think we had some mosquito-borne diseases in like Thailand, for example. Uh, it's it's actually been a little while since I've read the, through that paper, so I might be conflating <laughs> with something else. <laughs> and, and so maybe that's a perfect segue. Uh, what is, so the A1 group at Los Alamos, what is your, what is your mission? What, you know, what, what do you work on? Yeah, so so A1 is information systems and modeling. We do a lot of of kind of complex modeling that it involves or affects humans in some way. And so uh, I, I like to think of it as we have three kind of primary research thrusts in A1. Um, so uh, so I'm the group leader. I'm now I'm kind of supervising everything. But previously, when I was when I was a scientist, uh, I was on the data analytics team, which was one of those three thrust areas. The data analytics team has had a uh, uh, a keen interest in characterizing human behavior in models. And so that's why we've turned to things like social media or traditional news media, or we've also looked at economic data, for example, uh, and, and kind of how do we how do we kind of pull out from a variety of different data sources something about human behavior that may be difficult to measure. And so we've looked at things like disease modeling, for example. Uh, we've looked at uh, political instability modeling. Um, we've looked at kind of the spread of misinformation. Um, and there's there's a whole lot of different kind of application areas, but one of the big cross cutting themes here is, you know, how are humans behaving? Uh, how can we gain insights? And then how can we help, um, you know, maybe maybe provide um, uh, decision makers with additional information to uh, to make better decisions, more informed decisions. Uh, so we were, uh, for example, really, really involved with a lot of COVID response efforts here. Yeah. We, we had projects going on with the CDC. Uh, we had projects going on with uh, the New Mexico uh, governor's office and the New Mexico Department of Public Health, where we were helping provide, uh, you know, kind of at, back in the early days of the pandemic, kind of almost real time, we would be meeting with them multiple times a week to provide some useful information so that they could 
make more informed decisions about uh, closing down certain areas or or enforcing certain uh, restrictions. Uh, it was it was really really cool and impactful work and really meaningful. Um, so that that's kind of the data analytics team. Then there's the critical infrastructure modeling team. The critical infrastructure modeling team is really really cool. So they have a lot of of operations research type projects going on where they're looking at how can we make our electric grid more robust to to outages, for example, or yeah. or our water networks or our communication networks, things like that. They also have done work where uh, if there's a hurricane that's approaching the coast of Florida. Florida, for example, FEMA might want to know how our our you know power and electric and water like all those different uh, and you know gas systems like how are those different systems going to be impacted uh, by the hurricane so that they can kind of proactively uh, start responding. Uh, so we've done quite a bit of work in that where we're actually coupling climate models and weather models with yeah. these infrastructure models, like intelligent resource alloc allocation, like you know looking at areas that may be more or less affected and making sure exactly. That's exactly sense. right. That's exactly right. And they they'll they'll take it a step further. Well, they'll they'll actually incorporate the physics of the electric grid and the physics of the water grid. You know, the the, the water pipelines where where uh, you know there there are strict physics that govern how you know what those pipes and what the different uh, kind of distribution networks what they can tolerate and where they're likely to actually break down. Where there's places we can kind of uh, add some redundancy to the system to make them more robust and and so it's it's a, it's a really nice use of of kind of our understanding of the physics of the systems on top of the actual topology of the networks plus plus the climate models and whatnot it's really cool and then finally uh, we have a really neat capability that's all about um, uh, modeling uh, you know kind of modeling plume uh, uh, movements so so for example imagine that there's a like an agent you know chemical agent that's released in downtown new york city and so you know given the the buildings uh that are in new york given the weather patterns that are that are going on given where people are uh different people will be impacted by that potentially and looking at kind of how how those uh you know kind of characterizing how those plumes are likely to kind of move is really important for recovery efforts and and kind of cleanup efforts that that like the Department of Homeland Security or FEMA has to go through. And so they they have some really nice fast running models uh, that can run in a matter of you know minutes or hours that can help get information into their hands kind of right away in the immediate aftermath of of, of a potential scenario like that. So the, I, I think the long story short there is that your work, the work being done is incredibly important. And yet we all hope that uh, your work is not being used because <laughs> yes. if it is, it's, uh, <laughs> we are, re yes. we are, we are responding. <laughs> and, yes, that's exactly right. You know, I think it's, it's one of those capabilities that you want to have on hand, but you yes. hope you never have to have it. And, and just like with the COVID response stuff, yeah. uh, you know, you never hope that there's a pandemic. Uh, but luckily we had spent a number of years building up this great capability so that when it actually happened, and we were ready to jump into action and respond immediately. The CDC had a, uh, a had a really nice website that was uh, listing all of the models that were that were modeling COVID. And uh, towards uh, the end of about the first year, year and a half or so, there were over a hundred different models that were there. I believe we were the fourth model to be uh, added to the. Oh wow. Uh, uh, to that. And and so we were really, really early on, we were able to start to get information to decision makers hands kind of right away. And, uh, and so yeah, you know, you hope you never need it, but you want it when you need it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I really love like to kind of touching on the 
focus of your research, uh, kind of looking at non-traditional data sources to model like interactions or like human behavior. I always think of, uh, it's one of, one of my favorites is the, and you're probably familiar with it, World of Warcraft 10 plus, I think this is at this point, like 10 plus years ago where there was some disease in game and they were actually able to model like the effects of someone being able to get out of a protected area where this disease wasn't supposed to be able to go outside of and then monitoring the spread which had just taken over one or multiple servers as some people found this exploit and that was actually used to help like better model you know disease transfer and and uh sub and transmission over time uh i think it's just a really interesting approach yeah that's a that's a classic paper and i i love to refer back to that as well i'm really glad that you're aware of that it's cool yeah stuff. yeah it's like uh i i I feel like every day there's something that my mom used to tell me that it would never be valuable in my life, just like it's flipped on its end. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's a that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, so and maybe taking a look at you, what is your role within the A1 group? So my role right up until about the last month or so was I was a research scientist. And so I've been leading projects um, since... Uh, about 2015, when I was when I became a staff member here, uh, became a staff scientist. So so I started at Los Alamos in 2012. I was a grad student for the last two two and a half years of my PhD, uh, and uh, and then I, I was offered a staff position here, which I gladly accepted. And uh, yeah, so I've been I've been leading and co-leading projects with a lot of really great colleagues here. Um, uh, we have some some really fun work that we do with kind of all sorts of different government agencies, and and uh, it's it's a lot of fun to be able to to work. So the the, the research environment here is a lot like uh, academia in that we have kind of you know whatever we can dream up, we can write a proposal on that thing, we can hopefully get some grant money for it, and then we can uh, you know proceed with that sort of research. And so we have a whole lot of flexibility in that. We can bring on students and postdocs. Uh, just like in academia, and we have we have a number of students and postdocs in my group actually, uh, and and so it's 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 a really great place to be able to kind of create your own research world, and it's a really flexible place too. Like you know we've we started off with disease modeling, and then we found some potential applications where we could take the very same sorts of models that were running on same sorts of data sets, but then apply them in very different ways on a different project. You know, uh, like the misinformation analysis, for example, or or some of the, um, we have some models of, of uh, safety, you know, internal here at the lab. And it's really, really cool to be able to, you know, kind of transfer this, the kind of learning that we've been able to do on in one application area and then apply it in another application area. And yeah. so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was, was going to say like, it, so I would be really interested now, granted that you haven't had as much experience or I guess really any significant experience in the private sector in research. But, you know, what excites, and I think you answered a little bit of this, but I'm really curious, like, what excites you the most about, you know, research in the public sector and maybe specifically Los Alamos labs, national labs, but just kind of in general, like what, you know, what gets you going? What really do you find satisfied, you know, what satisfies you? Day to day. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so for those that maybe are not aware, so Los Alamos National Laboratory is the institution that you know, kind of designed and built the atomic bomb back during World War II. Like that's the legacy that we have. We we're about to celebrate our our 80th anniversary uh, coming up, which is which is kind of wild. And so a large chunk of what the lab does is still uh, maintaining our current nuclear stockpile. That's a, that's a huge portion of what what our current mission is. But we still have a lot more really exciting mission that's just kind of in generic national security space, and that's where where our team kind of plays. 
And in my mind, that's what some of the most exciting stuff that we do is, and it's really unique to to Los Alamos and to the other national labs like Livermore and Sandia and 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 many of the others. Uh, we we are working directly with uh, other partners that we have in the federal government uh, to help address really really hard questions. Uh, and and some of those questions are questions that that can't really be answered in the public domain. And so it's it's a great opportunity for for us to be able to leverage our expertise and get information into the right people's hands and know that you're actually making some tangible difference. Um, we, uh, we're often working with folks over in the Department of Defense or de like I mentioned, Department of Homeland Security and FEMA. Mm -hmm. um, we work uh, closely with pretty much every government agency that's out there. And it's, it's, it's really, really cool to have that kind of access to, uh, to not only get that kind of access to potential information to help mm -hmm. aid our modeling efforts or, or our research, but then also have that kind of access to be able to make an impact that they trust yeah. because we have years of, of, of experience building uh, trustworthy, uh, uh, you know, science uh, results that they that they will trust, and the, the literal resources of a nation state don't yes, don't hurt. yes yes quite literally yes that's exactly right. <laughs> awesome, and so maybe I'll switch gears a little bit here. Uh, I'd love to get your kind of thoughts on you know, there's AI is a uh, arguably the hottest topic in the world today. Uh, we actually just did a uh, a review of the South Park episode, Deep Learning, on <laughs> ChatGPT uh, as our last podcast episode. Uh, I truly think we have reached its peak peak zeitgeist. I think is definitely in, indicative of the South Park episode, and so uh, large language model mania or ChatGPT mania, maybe specifically, has kind of taken the world over. Um, I'm really curious, has like the rise of chat GPT and large language models and the public kind of awareness of those models and the applications of AI, how has that changed your life, either as a researcher or maybe even personally using tools to write code or, you know, help draft emails or blog posts or something? Um, or are you getting asks of research projects that have shifted and kind of like the research focus? Curious kind of uh, where you're sitting as a researcher, what has changed in your world? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. So personally, I, I mean, there's a fun anecdote where, so one of my uh, my deputy group leader, uh, Nick Generous, had, had a, so we send out an, a weekly Friday email that kind of summarizes some of the things that's gone on in the group and has some highlights in the group. And uh, one of, and my, my deputy group leader, Nick, uh, actually took a Friday email that he wrote and he ran it through ChatGPT and asked ChatGPT to rewrite it in like old English style yeah. or, yeah. <laughs> and so it's kind of funny just to see that sort of stuff. I, I I listened to a whole lot of podcasts, including a bunch of tech podcasts, and I was just listening to one where they were talking about how ChatGPT was just able to rewrite a some math proof. I don't remember which one, and but rewrite the math proof such that it's all in English in like limerick form and it was <laughs> it was it's astonishing like it's completely wild to me that it, that, that can happen um research wise i think the big thing is our group is actually getting asked in fact our, our my division at the lab i don't know that probably means nothing to you but but the the next level up from me is we're getting asked a lot of questions from the federal yeah. government kind of what are the implications here um you know what are the limitations are there ways for us to detect uh this sort of stuff um are there ways that we can leverage it, you know, in, in useful uh, contexts uh, so that we're not uh, so that, you know, maybe we're saving some ourselves some time. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, so th there's a lot of questions like that that are coming down the pike. I think we are trying to realize 
what are the right questions to be asking right now about the tool? I mean, everybody realizes, or you know, a lot of people are starting to realize that just because you have, you can create, you know, really nice sounding, intelligent sounding words that kind of make sense, it doesn't mean there's actual accuracy and facts yeah. in there. And yeah. and that's one of the big challenges as well. Is you know, can you can you identify when there's something that is maybe fact based that's being said there? And can you, you know, judge the quality of those facts? Um, that's one of the big things that people are trying to understand too. Yeah. So I think, I think you said trust and quality are the two pri yeah. like primary themes right now that everybody's trying to gauge and understand. And I mean, from, you know, the private sector side, working with customers and prospects that are looking to implement large language models or, you know, develop some solutions using either chat, like open AI's APIs or otherwise and fine tuning the level of, and, you know, the level of misunderstanding, I don't, I'm not going to say mis, it's not misinformation, it's misunderstanding of the capabilities, because yeah. just as you said, it is very good looking. It looks yeah. and smells great. Yeah. Uh, it lies, it, it lies with confidence. It's literally yeah. a con man. It, uh, yeah. it looks, feels and smells real. And so it gives people that don't have a deep understanding of the architecture or the actual task that the model's even performing a false sense of security on the quality or even the determinism of those results is the word I keep on uh, coming back to. And not to say that that, you know, baby in the bathwater and whatnot, there's obviously a ton of tasks which are very well suited for like a produce and edit type workflow uh, or where you don't have the requirement of determinism or like a need to automate based on some like continuously reproducible answer or result. Uh, but this disconnect, it, it, like if anything, it's just, it's, I think, I think you said it perfectly. I'm getting a lot of questions. <laughs> a lot of people are asking questions and trying to figure out what are the actual capabilities. Um, and we're slowly but surely starting to like bridge that gap. And the pay, the breakneck pace of model development is insane. I mean, just like I just saw, read about Vicuña today, uh, 13 billion, uh, parameter, uh, model that was trained on $300 of credits and is performing at GPT, you know, three level, uh, open source model performing at GPT three level, uh, uh, producing GPT three quality results is the word, the phrase I'm looking for. <laughs> and so whether or not like, you know, it is a GPT based model or insert some other model architecture that gets developed, or we start building a framework that allows us to have some, you know, verifiable or deterministic computer knowledge base pull or something like that. I think all the, the market in general will start figuring those out. But, uh, you know, from my end, the art of possible and the questions have started to pour in and everybody's getting asked the same set of things. What can we do? How do we take advantage? Is this safe? You know, or like, uh, can we even do it? Companies are you know, issuing uh, like uh, guidelines on open, specifically open, AP, uh, open AI usage. What can we send? What sorts of data? Is it just an embargo in, in general? And so, uh, definitely an unbelievable time to be in the industry. But there's also like this kind of, uh, there's, I think it's the biggest takeaway right now is just everybody's trying to figure out where the rough edges are, address those rough edges, and figure out where exactly and how this is going to usher in this promise of the AI age that, you know, everybody's been, uh, been preaching for so long. Yeah, you're spot on. And I think this is where industry meets meets us and meets academia. That's <laughs> right. So, so we, I think it's all kind of, we're all asking the same sorts of questions and trying to understand the limits and the capabilities and, 
and and I don't think anybody has any really good answers, and we probably won't for some time because I think I think answer you know finding out the answers to these is going to take their own concerted research efforts. Well, I mean, uh, according to Elon, we just paused for six months. Did you uh, did you sign the letter? <sighs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I did not. Shine did not either. So. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious, and for those listening that aren't aware, um, you know, it, what was it, I guess, one or two days ago now, Very uh, the Freedom of Life Institute, Freedom for Life Institute, FLI, uh, posted an open letter um, signed by Elon Musk and others, uh, notable names in the AI and ML development space, basically asking and calling for a six-month moratorium on any and all greater than GPT-4 uh, you know, quality models uh just offhand thoughts on on the letter i'm 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 assuming first did you read it i so i didn't read the i didn't read the full letter i've read synopsis of the letter i did not read the actual text and so um it's worth it it's very short it's surprisingly short uh it's only like five it's five paragraphs i think i as soon as we're done here i'll go back and read it (laughs) yeah yeah. Uh, um my thoughts in general on pausing any sort of research is that no, that's generally not a good idea um, with very few exceptions. And I think this is not one of those exceptions. So in, in my mind, uh, you know, if, if, there's some, if there's some regulation that needs to be handled on these sorts of tools or, or models or capabilities, then I think that should be pursued in parallel with the mm-hmm. you know continued advancement of these. Um, I don't think we need to stop anything because I don't think it's reasonable for anybody to actually stop. We're like you know the math is out there, it's and it's not particularly complicated math. <laughs> it's it's, well, it's, uh, a, it's an unrealistic ask too. It's, for, it's a totally know. unrealistic ask. That's exactly right. Um, I, I get why um, somebody would suggest that, but. In my mind, I just don't think it's a it's a reasonable thing to be considering right now. Uh, one of the things that I keep thinking about is there have been a number of conferences and workshops uh, over uh, the last long period of time about how uh, ethical AI and uh, you know should be worked on and constructed. And people have been thinking about this for a long time. And I think what needs to happen is that we need to have more of a focus on those sorts of conversations. Uh, rather than pausing the research, I think we just need to have a more concerted effort on getting all of the researchers in agreement on how to continue to proceed with it. And I don't think we need to pause the research in order to have those conversations. Yeah. Like Shine and I have been talking a lot about this and it's just, it did what it's supposed to do is to get everybody talking about it. And if anything, like the flashy headlines, great for the average person who is not in industry, has no idea, has heard the promise of AI has been hearing nonstop about ChatGPT or even played a little bit with it, but don't understand the implications and the responsibility that develop like developers and researchers have around the technology. Uh, it at least brings it to the front of the conversation. I do think, and I, I uh, I'm curious what you'll think after you get a chance to read it. But just that my biggest problem with the letter was, uh, just is almost like scaremonger wording. You know, like, what if we live in a world that is completely taken over by AI? Like, it's, you know, it presents these ludicrous what if scenarios in the absolute worst case to, you know, what, you know, what if we all die and are taken over by, you know, machine, you know, machine learning models and there's no need for humanity and stuff like that. It, it's, it, it feels kind of crazy. And it just doesn't seem to, it's just, it's very clear that this is a, I heard this term the other day. It's not virtue signaling, it's tech signaling, uh, trying to say this is, 
the way you should think, but I guarantee you dollars to donuts, anybody who signed that uh, open letter is not pausing any research. They're not telling their data science teams to not investigate uh, using an LLM for insert task here. Uh, no. They're all doing the same thing, whether they're developing the models themselves and they're trying to build ethical frameworks for sure, but it just uh, gets people talking. I just think it's a kind of was done in a little bit of a ham-fisted way. Um, yeah, I th and there's a, there's another element to this, which is, you know, as an experienced research scientist, the way that, that science works is we write these proposals, you know, we'll send proposals to NSF or NIH or, you know, what have you. Review. Then we get funding. Yeah, there'll, there'll be a review on the proposals. And then if you're selected, you get some funding. And once you get that funding, there are stipulations, you know, what, what are you going to deliver and when are you going to deliver it and how much, you know, is the budget. And if you all of a sudden just start pausing all of the work on this stuff, nobody's going to be meeting any of those those deliverables anymore. They're going to make the the funders unhappy. And I can't imagine that too many principal investigators are going to be willing to put themselves in that kind of position with their sponsors. Um, so just kind of from a practical scientific, you know, how science actually works on the boots on the ground, I I don't see that really flying very well. Yeah. So. Put on a tinfoil hat with me because I've been thinking a lot about this and I think it you could be directly affected. Uh, I see a point where there's like, I call it like AI saturation, where the tools, uh, you know, the plugins, whatever, like ChatGPT X 10, 11, whatever it is, it becomes so good. The tools become so ubiquitous that we're going to hit a point where, and, you know, refute me, do you think that there is a point in which the majority, 51% of unstructured content that is on the internet will be produced all or a majority by AI? Let's just call AI, whether it's large language model or not, some generative AI tool or process or system. I think it's possible. So one of the things that I've been try trying to wrestle with is, so by definition, these large language models are trained on the internet, right? Right. There's going to be this weird feedback loop where at some point the volume of content that they are themselves training on is it's there. exactly where I'm going. I'm so, yeah, yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah. It, I've been thinking like, about this for a while now, and I don't know how they're going to handle that sort of thing. You know, unless you had some sort of signature to yes. identify a piece of text as having originated from one of these large language models, which of course we don't and we likely never will, then there's no way to exclude it. So yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you how you work around that problem. I think that and uh, Shine and I have differing opinions here. I see identity as being a key like market driver in like how people are interacting with systems because there's going to be a premium placed on UGC is the is the term being used user generated content validated user generated content. Yeah, that somehow there is an at like. Hey, maybe they copied and pasted from a GPT window perfectly fair, but like this was a human that did this. And there's some degree of validation that, you know, we feel pretty confidently that it was maybe this human or just a human. Maybe it doesn't have to be this human, right? It was an actual user. Um, but the tooling that we're going to have to develop for detection, because I think detection is going to be key, at least giving some heuristic level of like, this is possibly GPT produced or, you know, in, insert foundation model or generative AI here, uh, how companies are going to deal with pushing the development of these tools when we can't guarantee that this is actually human or, you know, quote unquote, user behavior, user generated content and actions to that. And I feel already like just in the use cases that we're using chat GPT for, 
largely just sales and marketing enablement, some, you know, better writing blog posts and stuff like that, kind of like the standard fodder. Uh, I actually, so I'm not a software developer, I never really written code for yesterday. I had ChatGPT walk me through uh, writing my first RESTful API call and, you know, formatting and cleaning a data set and bringing it in and all programmatically. First, it took me about 10 minutes. First time I've ever done that. Things like this, these very toy use cases. Um, but I see, well, why wouldn't I just run this through ChatGPT or produce fun, interesting LinkedIn content by seeding it relevant tidbits of information or key themes and it makes it 10 times more interesting or it's just 10 times easier. And so therefore I'm always gonna rely on this thing that as we mentioned earlier, looks and smells pretty damn good. And in an edit workflow, I maybe change a couple things and makes it sound a little bit more like me. Uh, now we start getting into, as we ink, like this is with, chat, with GPT-4, and a ceiling of quality, so to speak, right now, as we start increasing that ceiling more and more and more and raising the floor becomes more and more difficult to find those rough edges, which I feel after using ChatGPT quite a bit in a kind of uh, experimental and actually productive capacity, I can start seeing some of the patterns, you know, in the language that it uses. But I, that's not going to guarantee for tomorrow as, a, as an expert user. And as it just keeps getting better, I just more and more people and for more and more tasks are going to be relying on generated output. And there's going to be uh, this broad implication of, is this actually a human? Like, are, are you, then are we just going to retrain in this weird Ouroboros of, you know, uh, uh, AI generated outputs and, in, you know, taking in as inputs? Um, there, like, there's going to have to be some market solution, I think, just from a biz for business case reasons that we need to have validated users or something like that on our platform. And the OG blue check, uh, as I should state it, not the, not what they have today, I think was, <laughs> you know, kind of the biggest example of putting a premium on specific individuals or human generated content and socials, I think where people are going to want to seek that because that that's the unique value prop is I'm looking at things that other humans are thinking about or generating in a community and it's interesting and I want to interact with or learn from it or whatever. Um, just th for everything else, like, you know, is it like books and novels and, you know, things like that? Uh, how much can we rely or how much of a premium will we produce on 100% human generated content? Or where do we start drawing the line on, you know, spell check is technically generative AI. If I use a bunch of spells, your grammarly, you know, is that okay? But there is clearly a point some, somewhere on this line to where we have to look like, is this okay? Or is this, is this acceptable? Or at least should we be informed that this was produced all or part or what parts by some, you know, insert model here. Yeah. Yeah. I think you raise, I mean, there's a whole lot to, to poke at in what you just said. And yeah. so one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, is it possible, is it even possible to detect, build a detector, right? A chat GPT detector. Um, I'm not convinced that it is possible. I think we might be beyond that, um, that point. Uh, I think, you know, there, there are definitely, language models from quite a long time ago that we probably could have built a detector pretty easily for. I think we are beyond that at this point, unfortunately. Uh, and so that we have a, a, there's a team here at Los Alamos that's been doing deep fake detection, you know, in the context yeah. of videos. And they have some really nice, robust models that are able to do that with pretty high accuracy. Um, videos are different because videos, when you modify a video, there's all sorts of artifacts that get introduced in those videos. And then you can train models to kind of recognize what those artifacts are. Um, for for text generation, there's no such thing. I mean, it's just it's just text. There's no there's nothing. There's no extra signal, unfortunately, that you can kind of try and pick up on. 
at least not that I can see, although maybe I'm being short-sighted. I don't know. You know, the only hope I could, you know, imagine is if OpenAI actually released the model uh, yeah. to people and said, hey, or, you know, poke at it. Uh, I think that would be kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I'm not sure that we're going to have that sort of capability. Um, you know, there there's some really exciting use cases for this sort of thing that are totally legitimate. Uh, and, you know, I, even in science, I've thought about, you know, there when we write a proposal, could could I use ChatGPT to help, you know, write like a chunk of the proposal in a more elegant way than I would have been able to write? Like it's saying it's communicating the same sort of yeah. thing that I want to get across, but maybe it's using uh, better scientific language or something, uh, you know, or, or you know, I, I don't know where you draw that line, but it does seem like there are a lot of use cases uh, for the tool. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just going to be really interested to see where all this goes right now, because I think I have more questions than answers. And I think pretty much everybody does at this point. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's we open Pandora's box. We're now yeah. poking at the contents of said box and trying to figure out like what to make of it and how it's useful. And, you know, can we trick it to say dirty things online by calling it Dan or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What do they call it? Prompt hacking. Uh, yeah. It's no one. No, the, I think there's comfort and no one has the answer. Right. Uh, and one of the challenges, of, I mean, you were just talking about, you know, what if we could have the proverbial blue check next to somebody? I mean, like just short of actually trying to have a video camera over somebody's shoulder and actually making sure they're mm -hmm. typing. How do you actually verify that they're adhering to their blue check agreement? Right. So I don't know. That's I don't know. I don't know how you solve that. Something problem. I certainly don't have the answer for, but I can I can sit here from my comfy armchair and uh, just wildly throw potentially incorrect suggestions. So you know, <laughs> I'm not doing anything that everybody else on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter isn't doing anyway. That's right. Yep. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is coupling this sort of technology with other technologies. So, you know, there's also been ChatGPT has stolen a lot of the limelight recently, but there's been some really exciting advances in audio, generative audio yeah. uh, uh, models. And of course, we also have some good generative video models and generative uh, uh, image models. And and one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is coupling those things together and how dangerous that could be, right? So what if, you know, there's been an uptick in scam calls where you, one of these generative audio calls has been trained on, you yep. know, purpose-built trained on somebody that you know. And yep. so it's kind of a spear phishing sort of attack. So what if they can not only generate the audio to sound like the person you know, like your mom but or the something video. like that, but not the video, and they can make it talk like her because they've yep. trained it on her entire history of Facebook posts, yep. right? So so that that sort of, of thing is certainly coming down the pike, and it wouldn't surprise me if we have working full pipelines by the end of this year that do just that sort of thing. 100%. And I think that's really dangerous, yeah. This is a problem that is something this is an extension of a problem that we've been dealing with now since uh probably the early 2010s where misinformation started to become kind of a problem on the internet right and you know then yeah. it was humans that were generating the misinformation and now it's starting to take you know at, at what point can you trust kind of anything that's that's that you're reading or that you're listening to or that you're watching uh you know at some point public trust is going to be entirely eroded and I'm not entirely sure yeah. uh, if we can kind of come back from that sort of situation, at least not in the way that it was pre, you know, back in the you know 90s or <laughs> whatever, when, when you just kind of assume everything is true. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, that, 
I keep on thinking it's ident like I, I think identity is going to become one of the biggest topics moving forward just in general uh, as there's this out, outsized importance on and again it I'm less concerned about the specific individual but I am concerned about is it yeah. an individual or is it you know some regist some degree of registered user and validation that this is human almost like uh, human KYC you know yes, KYH yes, know you're yes. human uh, that'll be the that'll be the yeah. big next workflow. Um, well, great, Jeff. This has been, it, we've gone longer than honestly I, th I thought we would. This, I mean, I should have known. I uh, always love chatting with you. Uh, maybe to kind of wrap up, is there anything you know you want to plug for yourself, socials, uh, anything the group's working on? Yeah, research, sure. So, uh, yeah, my name's Jeff, Jeff with a G. My mom loved the British spelling, so that's what she went with. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm gfairchild.com. Uh, feel free to you know reach out if you're interested. Uh, my group is is uh, always looking for talented data scientists, talented uh, you know scientific researchers, uh, and, the, and the laboratory as a whole certainly is. And so you know if you're interested, if if anything that I said kind of resonates with you, and you're interested in opportunities at a place like Los Alamos, even if you just want to have a conversation and see what kind of opportunities may be available, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Jeff, I'm so glad to see you're doing so well. Congratulations on the promotion, by the way, to group lead. Super exciting. Uh, again, uh, just wrapping up for everybody listening. My name's John Singleton. I'm co-founder and head of success at Watchful. You've been listening to Grounded Truth. Really enjoy the time. And Jeff, uh, have a great day. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. Bye, John.